We're going to jump back into our study of the book of Hebrews. Um, I just want to encourage you, if you did not have the opportunity to listen to Rick's teaching, we just took a quick sidetrack last week and looked at Romans chapter 13 in light of just the timeliness. Um, if, if you are paying attention at all uh, online to writings and things that people are saying, Romans 13 is coming up quite a bit just in terms of how we as believers have been called to submit to authority. So I would just say it was such a timely and very astute um, breakdown of Romans chapter 13, but also I believe a very prophetic voice as to what God is speaking to his church. So if you didn't have a chance to listen to it, um, or you just saw the email that came out after the fact, jump back online. You can watch it on our YouTube channel, YouTube channel, and, um, or you can stream it through our website as well. So uh, that was very, very well done, and I'm um, looking forward to how the Lord just continues to kind of massage that into who we are and what we're doing and what he has called us to. So, um, so we're going to get back into the book of Hebrews, and the portion of text that we're going to be looking at this morning is Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm going to take verses 1 through 10. Um, and I was thinking about it just because in my Bible which is kind of one of the, these thinner Bibles, I was thinking, gosh, we've been at this now for eight or nine weeks, and I think we've moved one page in my Bible. And so while it might not seem like we're moving very quickly through the book of Hebrews, honestly, I actually stopped for a moment and I was thinking about just the fact of the depth of truth that we have been wading through thus far. I mean, really, just the depth of the truth that we have been presented with over these last eight weeks or so, maybe even more now, that the writer of Hebrews is so eloquently and brilliantly bringing us into, um, we've actually progressed quite a bit uh, since we've been in this. And, and I was thinking to myself, I don't ever want to lose just the wonder that I have of Jesus Christ. And, and, and I say that in light of the fact that, of what I was just saying, that, well, yeah, we've been going, on, we're just moving a little bit at a time. I'm telling you, the deeper we go, the deeper he is. We will never find the bottom of the revelation of Jesus Christ, of the nature and of the character of God. And, and while that might, in a sense, seem like it could discourage us in our study, we also obviously know that really what that is is purposed for us to take occasion to worship and to wonder at who God is. And so I was just thinking to myself, man, I don't want to ever lose just that awe and wonder, even in the texts that are so familiar to my own heart. And the, uh, the, the depths of truth are just so, and, and wisdom and joy, not just truth, but hope and peace and all that we derive from it. It's endless, brothers and sisters. Don't stop. That's why things like the, the fast that we gave ourselves to last week, just those three days of the digital media, digital, uh, social media fast, was so wonderfully helpful because it pauses and it shuts off and it closes those external voices and noises that are just constantly coming in and it allows us for an intentional time of just depth, uh, immersion into the depths of who God is. Um, I was reading this week and I came across this text and I want to just share it with you, a little bit of kind of a primer before I open the actual Hebrews text this morning. Um, Augustine or Augustine, however you like to pronounce it, wherever side of the fence you fall on, he says this, for such is the depth of the Christian scriptures that even if I were attempting to study them and nothing else, 
from boyhood to decrepit old age, with the utmost leisure, the utmost unwavering zeal, and with talents greater than I possess, I would still be making progress in the discovery of their treasures. Is that not absolutely true? Brothers and sisters, give yourself to the reading of Scripture. There is nothing that takes its place. God didn't intend for anything to supplement the reading of Scripture. And so this kind of endless depth of knowledge, this, this, this deep well that we draw from is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is consuming himself with. And it's the exact reason why he's going to take a majority of the chapters now from here through. And we're going to see him focus on the very topic that I'm going to introduce this morning, which is Jesus as the high priest. And you would think, well, gosh, couldn't we just cover it in one Sunday? But we're going to find out the many facets when we turn it on its side and we flip it upside down that it is, again, just a wonderful depth of truth that we're going to um, continue to mine. And we're going to pursue this omniscient and unfathomable, unfathomable, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm struggling this morning, apparently. My wife is very concerned. You guys are all well, like, what's the change? This is a normal Sunday for him, right? Let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overcome this. Unfathomable. It was the end part, it was the immovable part that was really hanging me up. <laughs> All right, let's get the, into the text. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm actually going to back up just to get a little bit of runway. Kevin taught on it a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to read it to give the context for 5.1. We'll start in 4.14. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also, important two words, so also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we align our hearts with you this morning. Lord, we submit ourselves to your lordship first and foremost. 
We bring to you today all of our thoughts and ideas as it pertains to this text, Lord, and we submit them to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would lead us now into truth, that you would lead us now into a space, Lord, where Jesus is made front and center, where we, Lord, are confronted with the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus Christ and given an opportunity to bow our knee. Lord, it's you today whom we worship, and so we thank you for texts like these that present Jesus so clearly and wonderfully to us. Strengthen us today by your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said a moment ago, this portion of text that the writer of Hebrews is is presenting to us is really consumed with one thing, and that is showing us that Jesus is, is the great high priest. That's all he's really consumed with. And as we've seen, up to this point, the author has been presenting in a rather clear, I would say, in a compelling case for the superiority of Jesus Christ in the first four chapters. He's shown us, he's been building almost in such a way. We've heard thus far that Jesus, first and foremost, is the supreme son of God. That's what is presented in chapter one. Jesus is the supreme son of God. He's the better prophet, it goes on to say. He's greater than Moses. He's superior and greater to the angels, the author would say. He's greater than Joshua. And now as we've just read, he's greater than Aaron. He's the better high priest. And I was thinking about this, of course, just as I'm reading this. Imagine that truth for the early church hearers. To hear this statement, those who had familiarity with Old Testament covenant and the significance, they knew what a priest was. See, we were were far removed in a sense from just that everyday idea and language. But these hearers or those who were able to read this text, they knew what a priest was. And just that kind of mind-blowing reality for someone to say, listen, all of these people who were significant in the Old Testament, who were significant in the Old Covenant promise. Now we've presented to you today this Jesus the Christ, who far supersedes all who have come before. I'm sure that in and of itself was an opportunity to worship and to just kind of revel in the wonder of who God is and what he's done. And I would say that while that aspect is not insignificant to us, of course, I would say that if nothing else, if we would apply ourselves to knowing and to apprehending for ourselves this truth, that the, the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection, those three acts which encompass the totality of his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that if we would just grab a hold of the significance and the truth of that and so apprehend it for our hearts and lives, that it, understanding that it's greater than any work that was ever done by any man. And you might be saying to yourself, well, that's not that profound of a truth in the sense that I've heard that so many times. Yeah, but has it really taken root? Because I would say, when the cross takes root in our life, everything changes. And you know what I mean by that? When the cross has effect on our hearts, and when the, the work of Jesus on the cross begins to bear fruit, that's where things change. That's where things change. There is no work that is more complete 
than Jesus on the cross. There's no work that is more effective than Jesus on the cross. And I would say in, there is no work that is more certain than Jesus on the cross. And we're going to dig more into that here as I go along. I read this morning as I was just praying and preparing in, in my own time of prayer, uh, a quote by Oswald Chambers, and he said that preaching principles while ignoring the cross of Christ is like giving a warm compress for cancer. He was talking about just the, the morals and, and ideals that we so easily preach in and out of Sundays and wherever we are. But he says, if it's void of the cross, it's essentially ineffective. What good are principles if they lack the power of real change and conformity to Jesus Christ? Let us not lose sight of the cross. May it always be our starting point, our focal point, and our ending. And then I was just thinking too, if you've, experienced any uncertainty in these last few months, if you've experienced any amount of fear or perhaps anxiety or you felt disillusioned or overwhelmed for, uh, in light of the magnitude of the surrounding circumstances in this present cultural moment, how important this word is for our hearts and minds. And out of all those things that I just said, we could probably find ourselves somewhere on the spectrum, whether it's fear or frustration. And anything in between, we have all had some emotion given the present, all the present circumstances. I'm not just talking about COVID. The cross of Christ, let it be the anchoring point for our hearts and minds. So in these 10 verses, when I would say this, just to tie that to this Hebrews text, that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's presenting Jesus Christ as the focal point. And within these 10 verses, the writer has taken upon himself to prove the superiority of Jesus in his high priestly office. And I think we should begin just very quickly with with a reminder of what the significance was of a priest. In Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, what was the function of a priest? Priests were men. They were called by God, they were appointed by God to mediate as a means of reconciliation, as a means of, of, of communion with God and his people Israel because of their sin. They, they, were, they were the go-between, between the people of God, they were the go-between between a righteous God and a sinful people. And I was thinking, before sin, of course, none of this was necessary. When God created the first humans, there was no need for a mediator, of course, because no sin was present. But because of sin, in order for an absolute holy, for a, a perfect and for a perfectly just God to abide or to dwell among his people who were not perfectly holy and who oftentimes were not even holy in many ways, and of course, who were sinful, in order for him to be present, and yet not to consume them in his just righteousness, in his just judgment. Because of their sinfulness, the priests would make offerings and would make sacrifices to God, thus covering the sins of the people. 
But, and this is the writer's point, the assertion now of the writer of Hebrews is that Jesus, through his perfect and through his sinless life and through his obedient death, as a perfectly sinless sacrifice and because of his powerful resurrection and ascension into heaven where he remains today on behalf of the sins of all mankind. What greater, what better, what more superior priest could there ever be? Jesus is the final and the ultimate priest who has offered a final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. This is the point of what Hebrews is telling us. And and it's probably pretty obvious to us all, but what what then must happen is we must then take that truth and understand the significance of it for us. Why is that important? It isn't enough to just say it for the writer of Hebrews. But he's going to prove it. And in previous chapters, he's he's now going to use the form of comparison. In verses 1 through 10, in the first five verses, he brilliantly lays this case out by providing for us the distinct qualifications of a high priest in the Old Testament. So verses 1 through 5, he's going to show us that these are the distinctions of a priest. And then in verses 6 through 10, he's going to present the exact same qualifications, but this time he's going to show us that Jesus has fulfilled each and every one of those and assumes those exact same roles as the earthly priest did. So the distinctions are this, and I'm just going to give three from verses 1 through 5. The first is the nature, the second is duty, and the third is appointment. Those are the distinctions of the earthly priest. They were distinct in their nature, their duty, and in their appointment. Firstly, and vitally important was that a priest was a man. Listen, do not miss this. A priest was a man so that he could speak and act on behalf of men. A priest was a man so that he could speak and act on behalf of men. And he says this right off the bat. In chapter, or excuse me, in verse one, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Why is this important? Because it was man who stood condemned in the sight of God because of their sin. That was why it had to be a man, which is why Jesus had to be a man. That's the reason for the incarnation. Jesus had to be a man in order to regain what only man lost. Adam lost it in the garden as sin's entrance into the world. Therefore, it had to be a man to regain it. But as we know, not any man could regain what was required. It had to be a sinless man, a perfect man, whose life and whose death was a perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all the demands that that required. So his nature, first and foremost, had to be a man. Romans 5, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and he's speaking of Adam. So just as sin came into the world through one man, and therefore death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. 
Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It had to be a man because it represented man. But in this nature, Hebrews 5 tells us that it wasn't enough for a a priest just to represent the people on behalf of their sin, but they also had to be able to identify with the people. That's part of this nature. They both represented, but they also identified. And and he speaks of this in the the verses here that would follow in verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. See, because of this, a priest could deal humbly and compassionately with the people because he was one of them. He experienced the same weaknesses, the same temptations that they did, and he had to make the same offerings for himself that he made on their behalf. But Jesus, being the greater, being the better high priest, being the greatest, the ultimate high priest, in his humanity, of course, we know that he was without sin. But for our sake, Hebrews will tell us that he was not without identifying with humanity in his weakness. He not only represented us, but he also identifies with us. Hebrews 2.17, we read this earlier, it says that he was made like us in every respect. That's not just chance that the writer of Hebrews would say that. God purposed for this to be communicated to us, that he was like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I was thinking about this. You know, Jesus didn't have to identify with us. It wasn't necessary in the fulfillment of, of the price that was necessary with, with the price for sin, his sacrifice for sin. His representation was enough for redemption and atonement, but yet he still chose to identify with us. Why? I think it's, it's obvious, it's for the very reasons that the writer of Hebrews, so that he would be to us a merciful and faithful God. Be to someone whom we can hope in, knowing that he knows where we are, what we're experiencing. He did it out of love for us. He did it out of care for us. He did it out of compassion for those who would follow after him. It shows his kindness to us. Does it not? Secondly, a distinction was in duty. As to the duty, the role of the priest was to, as it says in verse one, was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. As a man on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to God. That's what it says in in, uh, those latter verses. In verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. But even as a man, those were not solely prayers, I believe, for reprieve from what he knew he was about to endure. Just before 
In the Gospel of John, just before he records the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he records one of the most beautiful and significant prayers of Jesus on his time of earth. And it's significant because of the extent to which it speaks of of Jesus' intent in his salvific work. Let's look at John 17 together. Gospel of John, chapter 17. And if you're not familiar, it's actually titled the High Priestly Prayer. And it's just loaded with both this picture of representation and identification of Jesus with his people, which will soon be the church, which is the new Israel of God. Let me just read some of this, beginning in the first verse of 17. Father, the hour has come. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. This is the prayer of Jesus. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Here is this representation. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now let's move down to verse 16. They are not afraid of the world just as I am not of the world. Sorry, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved may be in them and I in them. I didn't even read the whole thing just because of time, but such just a loaded prayer. I mean, there's so much in that, of course, but I just wanted to read that to allow it for us to see and to marvel at the intent of God in his plan of salvation for his people and, and and his representation on behalf of his people before God. The Father. See, this was a prayer from the one who had gone, who has gone before, on behalf of those who would follow after. That's what this was. 
So we know that ultimately, as much intent as there was in this prayer of Jesus Christ, ultimately his duty that he would fulfill was the offering of himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sake of those whom he loved and came for. First Peter 1 says this, you were ransomed for the, from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, and he says this, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The offering of Jesus Christ of himself was the perfect sacrifice necessary for the redemption. And listen, unlike the, the, the blood of rams and bulls and goats and all the other Old Testament uh, offerings that the priests had offered up, which could only cover the sins of the people, the blood of Christ removes the sins of humanity for all time or removes the effect of the sin of humanity for one time on behalf of all with one offering. And that idea of this one offering really struck me as I was thinking and studying about it. Think of all the times that they had to make a, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. We're talking about 40 years more or less, right? 40 years. What, a million plus people. And we're talking about all the different festivals and all the different offerings that were made in observance. Like millions and millions and millions of animals were, were probably killed and offered. And here's Jesus once for all. Absolutely amazing. That speaks to such the degree of his perfection and fulfillment of what was necessary. I actually was thinking, oh, I should try to add it all up. And I was like, no, it would take forever. What, what are you, like millions, right? Yeah. We're, we're all in agreement with that. <laughs> millions. I mean, we think we have a pork shortage right now. Well, I guess they weren't doing pork, huh? It was a bad analogy. They're doing, they're doing beef. Yeah, we think we have a methane problem right now because of cows. Think of those guys walking around with all those cows they had to drag around. And birds. And sheep, yeah. It was endless. It's hilarious. Unlike those, though, that, the blood of those animals only covered. Listen, the blood of those animals only covered, you guys. The blood of Christ removed. He removed. He removed from you and from me the effect of sin eternally. Yes, we still have to pay the price because of the sinful nature that we inherited through Adam. But Christ has redeemed us. And listen, it's not just a future hope. It's a present one as well. And we know this. And actually, we, we, we sung about it. And when Gracie read that from Galatians 5.1, we have been set free. Not we will be set free. We have been set free. Do not give yourself, therefore, to a yoke of slavery. Do not give yourself back over, or as I said a few weeks ago, don't go back into Egypt again. You've been set free. John's gospel in chapter one, upon seeing Jesus approaching, John the Baptist cries out, behold the Lamb of God, who what? Does he cover 
He takes away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was a greater high priest because of the greater and perfect sacrifice that he offered. And then thirdly was his appointment. In, in, in verse four of chapter five in Hebrews, he says that a priest was only a priest through appointment into the service. And he says this, and no one takes honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Priests didn't volunteer, they were called. And not only were they called, but they were appointed. They were designated for the role. And this designation or appointment was very specific. The priests over Israel were to be from the tribe of Levi, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, as we know, which leaves us to actually stop and wonder for a moment. If Jesus, could Jesus be the great high priest and not be a Levite? Because as we know, Jesus didn't come through the tribe of Levi. Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. And thus, the mysterious Melchizedek enters from stage left. It, it, it is. This, it, this is. This is why. See, the author introduces someone who he will soon speak of in chapter 7, but at the moment, I think this is great. He's comfortable with just dropping Melchizedek in in the middle of his letter. No context, no, you know, didn't bother to say anything about who he was or why, but th- this is why. Listen, this is why. He quotes Psalms 110, and the idea here is that he is, he is comparing him not to Aaron. The whole point is that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Therefore, he couldn't come from the tribe of Levi. He had to come from a lineage greater. And so Jesus now compares him to Melchizedek. And we'll look at it. I'm not going to begin to teach Melchizedek at this time. We'll teach it when we get to chapter 7. But the point is this. He's presenting a high priest whose lineage is supposedly greater and different and better. That's the point of Melchizedek in this moment. And so the significance of all of this is that Jesus' appointment as priest was an oath that was made by God. It wasn't so much who Melchizedek was, but what Hebrews is saying right here is that the appointment of Jesus was an oath that was made by God and it cannot be rescinded. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, Who's the him? It's God the Father. Jesus was appointed high priest by God the Father. Why is this important? Please don't don't lose me. I'm gonna wrap it up here in a moment. Don't lose me yet. His appointment as priest is the basis. Listen, just as the priest's offering was acceptable to God because of his appointment, because of who he was and who he had been appointed by, so too was Jesus' offering acceptable because of his appointment. It was the appointment to high priest that allowed his offering to be acceptable to God, to be pleasing to God, and to fulfill what was required. And therefore, because of this, God then accepts all of the offerings and all of the sacrifices made by Jesus the high priest. Do you see what I'm saying? 
It was necessary. It was the basis for which God would accept Jesus' offering and sacrifice of himself because he had been chosen and appointed by God. The full quotation of Psalm 110, which Hebrews doesn't give us here, is this. It's Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Can you say, thank God? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And then he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn Jesus is a priest forever. And when he takes up again this discussion of Melchizedek in chapter 7, he will say this concerning Jesus, that he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever, he will say in a few chapters later. And he says this, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the greater high priest because his appointment is eternal and it's bound by God's oath which no man nor any other being can negate. That is the basis. This is the importance. This is why we don't just say, oh yeah, well Jesus is great high priest. No, what does it mean that Jesus is the great high priest? So in all of these, as you can see, his nature, duty, and appointment, Jesus has fulfilled the role of priest. But it isn't enough to just even understand that. But let's apply it. Let's try to take a hold of it now. And I just want to take the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes that I have, and I want to try to apply this. And again, as I said in the very beginning, if you understand nothing else, or if you're, if you're seeking, in a sense, just one thing right now, understand this, the magnitude in the application of the work of Jesus Christ through the cross. Because if we get this right, if we get Jesus, if we get the cross, then all the other things come into alignment. It's gotta be Jesus, it has to be the cross. There's no other way around it. So, let me quickly just apply this for us today. I'm gonna give us the, uh, the Holy Trinity of applications, three things, okay? There, it's not exhaustive by any means, it's just three in the amount of time that I have. Three things to help us apply this. The first is representation, the second is completion, and the third is continuance. Representation, completion, continuance. Okay, application number one. Jesus the high priest now represents you and I today before God. Why is that important? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that for our sake, he, speaking of God, made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So what? So that in him who? We. He, God, made Jesus to be sin so that we would become the what? Righteousness of God. Jesus, the great high priest, represents you and I today so that we would become the righteousness of God. 
so that we could be seen as righteous, so that we could be called holy, so that we might live as righteous and holy people. This equation, which we find so often throughout scriptures, is God the Father plus Jesus the Son equals we, the beneficiary. Notice the first half of that. It isn't one plus garbage equals perfection. It's holiness and perfection equals us, the beneficiaries. We were the garbage in that first equation, right? We've got nothing, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like daily I feel like, man, I've got nothing to give to this. Except what? Except my obedience. Except my faith. Except all of my life. But in terms of what do I have to offer, I'm telling you, honestly, just this morning I was sitting in, in my office praying in preparation and I was going, God, like, there are so many days I don't even feel like I am equipped to do what you've called me to do. But honestly, when I have those prayers, immediately I remind myself and I speak out, but you have called me to this task. Therefore, you will give me the grace and you will give me the measure of faith that is necessary for it. That's all of us. That's all of us. He represents us today. God initiated it. Jesus obeyed and we benefited. And because it was a one-sided effort, and this is the part I love, because it's one-sided, because we were excluded from the process, we don't get to remove ourselves from its effects, right? We don't get to remove ourselves or negate the effects of what God did through Jesus Christ. Because God knows I would somehow. Even if I didn't want to, I'd still find a way to muck it up somehow and to remove myself from the equation. I was thinking about this. The decision of a husband and a wife to conceive a child results in an effect that cannot be reversed. Even if the child tries to disown the parents, the reality remains that the DNA, they are still that person's child. They still identify as a child. No matter how hard Jonas tries, he will always be my son. Genetically, he cannot change that, no matter what he tries to do. Jonas will always be my son. Why? Because it wasn't Jonas's choice to be conceived. That is you and I. It was not our choice to be conceived as the righteous children of God. But yet, because of the love that Shannon and I have for each other, and because of the love that God has for us, we are the beneficiaries. Gosh, you guys, I love this stuff. I mean, I love it. And this isn't anything you haven't heard before. But let's continue to remind ourselves of this because it brings us so much joy, does it not? So that was the first. He represents us. The second is built upon this first idea, this first truth. And as I said, it's completion. Jesus is the high priest has offered for your life and for mine a sacrifice that is utterly fulfilling to God's just demands for sin's payment. And that word there is the word propitiation. And as a sacrifice, that, it, that and as a sacrifice, it is fully effective in achieving the freedom 
from sin that present that we were presented with in our sinful nature. Sorry, I was messing up all over my words again. It was fully satisfying and it's fully effective. It's complete. There's a song we used to sing when I was growing up, and some of you might even know it. It was the first line of the song was, It was done, it's complete. By your blood you paid my price. What a beautiful truth that is. You guys, it is done. Say it with me. It's complete. It's complete. It's complete. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is done, it is complete. The fullness of what is necessary has now been attributed to you. It's been given to you. It's been credited to you. That's the idea. The the theological word is efficacy. So you have, in the atonement, you have the propitiation and you have the efficacy. And the beauty of propitiation, it's this idea that it's the wrath of God. Propitiation essentially just means that it's the wrath of God turned away. Not negated or not voided, but diverted in a sense. The wrath of God has been turned from you, Nicholas McCutcheon, and is now fully on Jesus the Christ, who stands in perpetuity of your sin for all of eternity, and it will never change. He now stands, as I read in the, from chapter 7, he stands on our behalf as a perpetual sin offering. And the writer of Hebrews says, continually interceding on our behalf. And it's funny, I was talking to Dean Miller yesterday on the phone, and many of you know Dean, and he and I were chatting. And if you ever talk to Dean, you'll go from, hey, how you doing, to let's talk about the tetramorph of Revelation in like 30 seconds. And so Dean and I are catching up, and as quick as we catch up, we start talking about these really just this deep theological truth. And, we, and I was talking to him because I was thinking about this text. And so we started talking about this idea of, the, of Jesus Christ being the perpetual sin offering. He said, you know, so often when we hear this continual intercession, we often think that it's like Jesus and he's whispering in the ear of God. And oh yeah, that's a good one. You know, don't smite that person down there. No, or, or like he's, these gentle prayers of intercession on behalf. No, no, no. Jesus stands as like a stone wall to the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus stands as like this object, of course, of perfection, but this object that has just consumed all that sin required on our behalf. It's like he's just, you know, in a sense. I don't want to, you know, mislead us in our thinking, and some, but I just, this is how I, where my mind goes. I'm like, you know, it's not this like gentle intercession. No, man. He's standing there going like, no, this one's mine. These are mine. This is what I did before the Father. You remember, you called, you appointed, I fulfilled. Now all of this is done. And your wrath can no longer be directed toward the righteous ones. Thank God. Thank God. His anger has not only been stayed, but it has now been turned away. It was personal, and that's what propitiation means. That propitiation was person to person. It was wrath from one person to another. So if sometimes you don't feel like it's personal, listen, you were in the crosshairs. 
I was in the crosshairs because of my sin. It was personal, but God turned it away. And Ephesians 2, 3 says this, but God being rich in mercy, amen? Because of what? His great love. I'm gonna cough, excuse me. Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This free gift has been given to you. If we could have offered the sacrifice for ourselves that would have been pleasing to God, we would have. But we know that we couldn't. And so God did. And, and that offering was complete, you guys. It's done. It's complete. By his blood, he paid our price. And lastly, this, and I gotta hurry and finish. It's continuance because it was Jesus who offered himself up for us by the plan of the Father. So now it is Jesus who will forever continue to do so on our behalf. The, in, the eternality, listen, the eternality of this act is where all of our hope is found. It's where all of the hope of its effectiveness, <coughs> excuse me, of how we live in this hope of its effectiveness because it's eternal, because it is continually being made before the Father. If we know that he stands before the Father as a perpetual sin offering, continually interceding on our behalf, then we have a great hope in the ability to complete this life and to enter into the internal inheritance which awaits us. If we know that, it, it, that his sacrifice will never be thwarted, nor will it ever end, then what hope we have, what security we have, what assurance we have that what awaits us in eternity will most certainly happen, Amen. We're convinced, as Paul would say, I am convinced that neither height, I'm gonna cough again. I'm, I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor rulers or powers or anything, other, any other being within all of creation can remove us out from underneath this flow of intercession, this flow of love, and this flow of mercy. We are suited now, brothers and sisters, to face whatever circumstance befalls us, whatever circumstance. We are suited to face whatever circumstance befalls us. Why? Because Jesus stands as high priest continually on our behalf. You will never be removed. You might stumble and fall, but if you are his, you are his, and you will never be removed. And of course, we know that this future hope then affects our present reality. It also means that whatever sin we find ourselves in, our confidence is that forgiveness eternally remains, and the power of it over our lives eternally remains broken. Listen, brothers and sisters, come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus today. He's our source of peace, of course, our source of hope and our source of joy. And as the writer of Hebrews says in the previous chapter and the verses that I began with this morning, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen? God has given us the grace 
Let's tap into it. Let's receive it. Let's take hold of it. Would you stand with me, please? I'm gonna close in prayer. I apologize, I went a little bit long, but I can be kind of excitable sometimes and then I have more things to say. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for just this picture of Jesus. Lord, that we are confronted this morning with our inability and our finiteness. But yet, Lord, in the instant that we are faced with such limitations, immediately, Lord, you present yourself as able and capable and limitless, God. We thank you that we worship today a God who is not in our likeness, but a God who is so much greater. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would continually now just be confronted of what has been said and so be rooted and fruitful in this truth, Lord, that your sacrifice was a representation on our behalf and still is today, that it is continual, Lord, that it, in that it is eternal. It will never end. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that it is fully effective for all of our life. Lord Jesus, may we never lose the wonder of the cross. May we never find ourselves at the end of our understanding of Jesus Christ or finding ourselves at a place where we think we've reached the end of our understanding of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you continue to keep us humble and to keep us submitted we commit ourselves to, your, to submission unto you, Lord Jesus. And Father, of course we pray, would you unite us in heart and mind? Would you help us maintain unity by your spirit, Lord God? Would you keep us, preserve us, Lord, and compel us into the mission of the gospel? Lord, this picture of Jesus is too good to hoard and to keep for ourselves. It's too marvelous, it's too beautiful, it's too majestic, Lord, and wondrous in its nature. We have to give it away, God. I pray, Father, that this upcoming week, we would find ourselves in situations to give it away, to speak of the vastness and the greatness of what Jesus has done, and so, other, and so to invite others into this wonderful life that we live of, of mercy and grace. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for Capital City Church, and I thank you for the partnership that we have with other churches outside of this city. Lord, would you keep us united for the sake of your gospel? Would you keep us moving forward for the sake of the gospel, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, shake this city, shake this state, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Shake it, Lord, and so reveal the nature of the church the beauty of the church. May she find her place and find her voice again for the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, go with God. Do either of you guys have anything you wanted to say this morning? Go in the grace of God. We look forward to worshiping again together. Um, just a reminder, we're starting, listen really quick, in light of what I have said, hopefully you were touched by some of the magnitude of who God is. Yeah. I just want to give you the specifics. Matt was going to 
go into the fact that we're starting this study through the book None Greater. For those of you that signed up, we begin Wednesday night. It's going to do it via Zoom. Read the introduction and the first chapter. I'll lead the discussion this week, and then we're going to have following weeks one of you uh, volunteer to lead it. I'll give you an example this week of how we're going to do it. And what Matt was going to say was going to be good. It's this book is awesome. Yeah, uh, my, my, my verbiage will be a lot simpler than his. It, it, it's really a good book, and it's worth getting into. So, All right. We'll see you Wednesday night, 7, uh, 7.15, 7.15, 7, 7 to 8.15 on Zoom. If you're looking for the info, if you haven't seen it on Realm, you can come see me or Rick. We'll get, we'll get you hooked up with it. Um, but otherwise, we'll see you Sunday. Bye-bye.